Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the U.S. foreign policy and the role the U.S. will play in dealing with the issues around the world and how they impact Americans. My guest today is an expert in this area. John Pfeffer is the author of Splinterlands, and he is also the director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. John Pfeffer, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate you being with me today. John, we, we talk about foreign policy of any country, especially the United States, but all countries, really. We're, we're, we're dealing with <laughs> quite a, a tangled involvement there. Now, let's just start off with the Biden administration. Joe Biden, as uh, president, has obviously a different foreign policy or has different foreign policies, I should say, from the uh, Donald Trump administration. What do you see as some of the the contrasts between the two administrations and where is Biden going as far as moving into dealing on a, a sort of an international multilateral level with the countries and with events and with agreements? Sure. Well, obviously, Donald Trump is no great friend of the international community. He came into office basically promising to sever America's ties with global institutions, global agreements. Uh, and over four years, he, well, unfortunately, was rather successful in doing so, pulling the United States out of such things as the Paris Climate Accords, uh, basically overturning the Iran nuclear deal, setting back uh, relations with Cuba, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the Biden administration has come in basically on a policy of restoration uh, to restore America's ties with these international agreements and institutions. So very early on, the new president basically signed a, a bunch of executive orders that brought the United States back into, uh, into the international community, uh, rejoining the World Health Organization, um, rejoining the Paris Agreement on Climate, um, uh, rejoining the UN Human Rights Council, uh, and also signaling that the United States was more or less going to bring its foreign policy more in accordance with international law. So that has been kind of the, the, the headline item, if you will, for the first month or so of the Biden administration. And how important is it for the United States to be involved in these treaties, in these agencies, in the organizations, uh, why is it in our best interest to do that? Well, of course, you know, the Trump administration didn't think it was in America's best interest that in order to make America great again, it was necessary to essentially act unilaterally in the world. Um, and it didn't matter what our allies or our adversaries had to say about it. 
Um, but in the past, I mean, prior to, to Trump, it was perceived to be in America's best interest to cooperate with allies in order to uh, work on global problems as well as more immediate problems facing the United States, perhaps on its borders with Mexico or Canada, um, and to negotiate with our adversaries uh, to deal with common problems as well, and to work more or less together with the international community, whether it was with the United Nations or what have you, to deal with problems that you couldn't deal with, either unilaterally or even bilaterally, problems like climate change, problems like nuclear proliferation, uh, problems like pandemics. So uh, I think the Biden administration essentially you know, subscribes to that notion that it is in America's interest to deal with these common problems in a common way with uh, both our adversaries and our allies. And these are important issues and we do have to be involved as, as sort of the old joke goes, if, if, if you're not in the game, you're sitting on the sidelines. And if you're on the sidelines, you have no interest and you have no power whatsoever in setting the agenda. And somebody will set the agenda. We've seen it at the United Nations. When the U.S. started to withdraw, the Chinese were more than happy to move in and many other countries too. Anytime you have a power vacuum, someone will fill it. And if you're not there to help set the agenda, then you suffer the consequences of not setting the agenda and being a participant. And that's true with the Human Rights Council, with just on across the board. But now your organization, the the Institute for Policy Studies, you cover all of these issues. And I guess, well, first of all, let me put out a plug for your website. It's www.ips-dc.org. And our viewers can go to your website and get a lot more information about these issues. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, IPS works on both foreign and domestic policies. Uh, we look at issues of um, inequality, economic inequality, both within the United States and globally. But we also look at uh, U.S. national security policy, U.S. military policy, uh, immigration questions, um, pretty much the broad uh, gamut of uh, issues facing the United States. Now, with the, uh, with the situation with the new Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken, there, he made the statement the other day that uh, Joe Biden really has sort of a pragmatic mindset uh, to solve problems as opposed to a specific doctrine. Is that uh, helpful uh, in the past? I'm not sure Donald Trump had a doctrine. His was more of an ad hoc, many people say knee-jerk reaction to a particular issue or problem. But is that a good approach to take? Well, you're right that uh, the Trump administration basically did not have a doctrine. A doctrine basically assumes a kind of coherent approach to a wide set of problems. It's hard to say that the Biden administration has a doctrine other, you know, when it comes to foreign policy, other than say liberal internationalism, that it's, uh, it's generally, as you pointed out, a good idea to have a seat at the table in order to have some kind of leverage uh, and to be part of the rule setting uh, approach uh, at the international level. At the same time, you could say that the Biden administration adheres to what had been an earlier kind of, say, uh, sub-attribute of liberal internationalism, at least as perceived by the United States. And that is what you might call a la carte multilateralism. In other words, the United States would work with other countries when it could, uh, but it would work unilaterally when it had to. 
In other words, it would pick and choose when to work multilaterally, when to cooperate with other countries. Obviously, we've seen the application of a la carte multilateralism in a variety of approaches the United States has taken in the past, such as invading countries, even when the international community has not been enthusiastic about uh, the US decision, for instance, in Iraq. Um, it has, uh, for instance, signed, it signed that um, the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court under in the Clinton administration, uh, but that was never put to uh, the Senate to ratify as a treaty. And basically the United States has, well said, well, when we agree with the ICC, we'll work with it. But when we don't agree with the ICC, we won't work with it. And the ICC has launched investigations, for instance, in US uh, conduct in Afghanistan, as well as Israeli conduct in the occupied territories, both policies of which the United States has disagreed with. Now. The Trump administration went so far as to apply sanctions to staff of the International Criminal Court. And that's something that the Biden administration recently lifted. But as Blinken said in his statement, there is the caveat that the United States still disagrees with uh, the ICC investigations in Afghanistan and in the occupied territories. This is ultimately a question of sovereignty. Um, there has been the argument that well, the United States should not allow its uh, military personnel to be subject to prosecution at the ICC, even though, frankly, you know, it says very clearly in the Constitution that, uh, you know, that federal laws take precedence over international laws. So there really isn't a constitutional issue there. Nevertheless, this has been the U.S. policy. It's another example of what you can call a la carte multilateralism. We we agree, we co cooperate with other countries when we uh, can't or want to, but we disregard um, multilateral initiatives and institutions when we feel that we have to. And you mentioned the International Criminal Court. That was set up by the United Nations, but it's not part of the UN now, even though they do collaborate and coordinate closely on issues. But you're right, uh, the US has not become a member of that organization. And a lot of people believe it should, it would be in the US's best interest, but there is that complementarity within the International Criminal Court that allows or requires really a nation that has its own judicial system to deal with any problems that may arise, be it US soldiers in Afghanistan or whatever the case might be. So that sort of negates or weakens the United States argument to a large degree. Uh, you are the author of Splinterlands, and this was a book I think you wrote in 2016, and it was really a very, uh, you were very clairvoyant at the time, and uh, as I recall, it's one where the, the major powers have splintered, uh, the climate change is taking place, the global temperatures are soaring, you've got economies that are collapsing, you've got violent nationalism, and I would throw in there conspiracy theories probably, but how do, how do those issues in Splinterland tie into the state of affairs today, where we are right now? Well, first I'd say that when I wrote it, um, there were a lot of concerns about the trajectory of international relations and of the international community more generally. In other words, this body of multilateral institutions and treaties that have been built up both you know, within the UN system, but as you've pointed out, uh, associated with or even uh, adjacent to the UN system. Over the last 
well, since 1945, since the end of World War II, it seemed to be under, well, unusual threat uh, by 2015, 2016. It wasn't just, you know, the proliferation of wars, the proliferation of global uh, problems like climate change. It was also a perception that some institutions which were assumed to be givens that would, you know, continue, well, forever, like the European Union, uh, perception that it might well be on the verge of unraveling as a result of Brexit, uh, but not just Brexit, the UK withdrawing from the European Union, but a variety of other countries, members of the European Union expressing rather severe discontent with the institution. Um, and that this kind of um, dissolution of both regional and international authorities would simply continue um, with the rise of right-wing nationalist leaders and right-wing populism. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the background to writing Splinterlands, which imagines what went wrong, essentially, uh, looking backward from the year of 2050. Now, it's four years later. Uh, Trump is no longer in office. It seems as though the European Union has more or less stabilized without uh, the UK as a member. Uh, and other, some other right-wing populists uh, seem to be fighting for their political life. You know, people like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, for example. So perhaps you could say, ha, well, we missed that one. We dodged a bullet. And I would be the first in line to say, I am certainly happy that my prognostication skills have proven to be weak, you know, because <laughs> no, no person who <laughs> writes a, a dystopian a novel wants it to come true. And they write it as a warning. George Orwell was, didn't want 1984 to look like 1984, his novel. He wanted you know, the world to veer off in a different direction altogether. Um, however, that said, uh, I would argue that unfortunately many of the trends that I was talking about in 2016 have not really gone away. We still face the same global problems, whether it's, you know, again, climate change or nuclear proliferation, um, uh, as well as obviously the current pandemic, um, we still see the weakening of multilateral institutions around the world. And we still see, unfortunately, some very strong uh, right-wing nationalist slash populist movements that are, you know, basically taking advantage of the same trends that they took advantage of four years ago, namely, a, uh, a global economy that is not delivering for everybody in the world, uh, political elites who, who are either corrupt or seem you know, quite uh, distant from the, the populations, um, and uh, a perception that, that migration and refugees are uh, flooding countries all around the world because of a major refugee migration crisis. Uh, so those are still present and unfortunately, uh, we've seen examples of right-wing populists who lose uh, in the interim period after, say, one term in office, who then return after four years. Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, for instance, uh, is now serving a much longer second uh, term or is that second uh, tenure in office. And so there, I fear that, you know, if not Donald Trump, then someone like Donald Trump could return here in the United States. Jair Bolsonaro, if he's voted out, well, if not him, who, uh, he who comes back four or five years later than someone like him. So unfortunately, this is um, because the, the overall 
environment really hasn't changed substantially since 2016, I think it can generate the same kind of negative and unfortunately dystopian um, uh, trajectories. It, it certainly seems that way and history certainly proves that to be the case. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or a community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, just have a computer, you like our shows and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at the role of the US foreign policy and its involvement in a wide range of international institutions and why it's important for us to be actively involved. I guess today is an expert on this topic. Mr. John Pfeffer is the author of Splinterlands and he is the director of foreign policy and focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. John, we're talking about just a wide range of issues with the Iranian nuclear deal, with involvement, re-involvement with the United Nations and what have you. Uh, a lot of uh, foreign policy analysts, not all certainly, but a large number uh, view the, the past four years of the Trump administration as being a very incoherent, incompetent group of people who had really dysfunctional foreign policies, generally speaking, not totally, but generally speaking. But one of the side effects of that has been that the United States lost so much prestige and credibility with other nations around the world. How badly, how badly did we lose that? Do you see that? We see it in the polls. And if that is the case, what can we do to get some of that respect and credibility back? And even more importantly, get these people to work with us in dealing with climate change, with human trafficking, uh, with human rights abuses, uh, just on across the board. Sure. Well, I'm sure all your viewers are, are well aware of, of that toast rule. You know, you drop a piece of toast on the floor, you have seven seconds to pick it up and eat <laughs> right. it without any negative ramifications to your health. I think a lot of people coming in uh, to the Biden administration believe that the United States uh, abides by a four-year rule. In other words, our democracy fell on the floor for four years, and if we pick it up really quickly, it can be restored to good health uh, without too much uh, suffering from, uh, from that four-year experience in the dirt. Um, and I'm not so sure that that's the case. I think there, there has been some long-term um, impact of, of Trump's policies. I mean, if you take a look at, for instance, um, immigration questions, you know, we still, even though the Biden administration has, you know, tried to do what it can to kind of at least bring the United States more in accordance with international laws as it uh, applies to refugee policy, uh, our number of refugees that are being allowed into the country is actually lower. Uh, so far this year than it has been in any administration, including the Trump administration. And it's because of a number of rules that the uh, Biden administration hasn't quite pushed through, and it could change that in the second half of this year. But it's just an indication of how difficult it is sometimes to actually, as Biden would put it, build back better. It's much easier to destroy things. I mean, it's much easier to 
drop something on the floor and have it break than to meticulously pick those pieces up and glue them back together. But we have to also understand that this takes place in a larger uh, environment over a, a longer period of time. In other words, the United States is no longer the kind of uh, unilateral or unipolar power that it was, say, in the immediate uh, aftermath of the end of the Cold War. The United States has lost relative power. And I put the stress on relative power. I mean, obviously, the United States is still either has number one or number two economy in the world, depending on what measurement you use. Number one military in the world um, still has a tremendous amount of soft power at its disposal. But over the last 20 to 30 years, we've seen the rise of a variety of other powers, both middle powers, countries like South Africa, Brazil, India, but also you know, potential rival hegemonic powers. Russia, obviously, a return to its Soviet greatness of some sort under Putin, but most importantly, China. Uh, and so the United States is operating in an entirely different environment now. So even if it wants to have the kind of influence that it had in the 1990s, or even the influence it had before Trump took office, it's a lot harder to do that in this kind of multipolar environment of today. It certainly is, yes. And while we're talking about perceptions and how people view the United States. I, I'm reminded, and it seems like on a daily basis, about the, the treasonous assault on January 6, 2021, when a large group of, they call some call them domestic terrorists, insurgents, attacked the US Capitol with the attempt to overthrow a fair and legal election. In your interactions with people overseas and the feedback that you get from reading articles, how, how did that act? really impact the status of the United States and the perception that people around the world had of the United States? I think that's a good point. You know, that, uh, you know, if you look at the commentary uh, in countries that are both our allies as well as our adversaries, you know, there was a, a real um, surprise. Uh, surprise not only about kind of the the fragility of democracy, because let's face it, um, you know, there it was after the the 2000 election that people around the world had to come to terms with the fragility of, of American democracy. Surprised at, for instance, that this, the Supreme Court would have to come in to determine an election that was so close. Um, but in 2000, there was no insurrection. There was no violent response. Uh, this time it was something entirely different. And the notion that, um, a military response within the United States or a paramilitary response within the United States so close to the surface, I think really changed people's perception. I mean, on the one hand, obviously people around the world are well aware of the amount of violence in American society. I mean, when I lived in Japan, I can't tell you how many Japanese folks would say, I'm not visiting the United States. That's an incredibly violent place. I'll be shot. And I'll say, well, you know, the, the gun violence takes place in particular areas. I couldn't convince them. And in some sense, I couldn't convince myself. We do live in a very violent society. But there was always a separation, say, between the gun violence and at a social level and the politicized use of violence. And people would say, okay, you, you have, you're crazy about guns, but, you know, no one has as a coup in the United States, not like in Thailand, which has coups like periodically every four or five years. Um, 
but that's what changed on January 6th, the kind of collision of Americans, America's gun culture and the, the kind of political violence that so many other countries experience on an unfortunately frequent basis. Well, John, you've uh, encapsulated a lot of excellent points for us to think about. And in the last 30 seconds, let me ask you the hardest one. What is a piece of advice that you would give to President Biden and to leaders all around the world, really, uh, from Kim Jong-un in North Korea on to Vladimir Putin in Russia, as to how we can work together to help create a better world instead of being at odds with one another? Well, you know, I think we should we should go with Biden's pragmatism, you know. So forget about coming up with an ideology, a doctrine, whatever. Let's focus on fixing a problem and a problem that affects everybody, whether you're talking about North Korea, Russia, France, the United States, Ecuador. Let's focus on solving the problem. Um, and regardless of the politics of the actors involved, regardless of the bad blood among the the different participants in this global campaign. Let's choose whether it's the pandemic and ensuring that everybody gets inoculated or it's climate change and ensuring that we all work together to reduce the global carbon footprint. That's an opportunity not only to work together pragmatically on an issue, but for the United States and the Biden administration to lead by example, not lead by rhetoric, not lead with soft power, not lead with the military, but lead by example uh, and use our resources and uh, the, our people and what we represent uh, in terms of our skills uh, to help the world and help ourselves on these issues. John, that's a perfect way to close it. And I hope, and I'm sure they'll all be watching this program once it goes on the air. <laughs> but John Pfeffer, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.